I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. When I conducted my interview for this episode in mid-December 2021, Russian forces were already massing on the borders of Ukraine. Although the invasion was only weeks away, few could imagine the horrors that would ensue in the months ahead. With references to fascists and Nazis in Ukraine, Putin harnessed the memories of the Great Patriotic War to rally his troops and people behind what he has labeled as the Special Military Operation in Ukraine. Professor Todd Nelson, whom I feature in this episode, argues that long before this conflict, Putin crafted a new narrative of Stalin, anchored in the victory over Nazi Germany. This rehabilitation and recasting of the memory of Stalin isn't just a feel-good story for the Russian people. It's a self-serving justification of Putin's authoritarian state and a dangerous militarization of Russian society. To delve into this subject in greater detail, I'm pleased to welcome Professor Todd Nelson from the Political Science Department at Cleveland State University to discuss his book, Bringing Stalin Back In, Memory Politics and the Creation of a Usable Past in Putin's Russia. Todd, thank you for taking time for this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you for having me. You begin your book talking about uh, your studies. In, I think it was in St. Petersburg, right, in 1996. And <clears throat> it seemed to me that that was the starting point for this idea that uh, that you were kind of surprised by how the Soviet past popped up in that particular context where you were attending a Victory Day parade, I believe. Mm-hmm. And what you saw kind of caught you by surprise. So that was actually the second year that I had spent in Russia. I was there in, I started in 1993 um, there. And it was still very, uh, was still very Soviet, I guess, in the early 90s um, there. And there was, there was already a lot of uh, economic turmoil and sort of uncertainty um, and even by that time, there was a there was a joke that was going around um, that uh, what has Yeltsin managed to do in two years that the Communist Party couldn't do in seventy? And the answer is make communism look good. And so, I think that about in the first year there was already starting to be a sort of um, backlash or reaction to these sort of anti-Soviet attitudes that were um, more prevalent in the early nineties. Um, but yeah, it was it was very surprising to see how that sort of manifested itself in this sort of um, glorification of Stalin. And so, uh, at the the particular event that I was at was just a Victory Day parade um, in Saint Petersburg. There was a, a sort of um, gathering on Palace Square, which is this really large uh, sort of expanse, and there were all these um, red flame. Everyone's waving the. Uh, Communist Party flag, but it was really startling to see people carrying, you know, posters of Stalin. And there was actually even a, a guy who had set up, sort of set up a little, I don't know what you'd call it, a booth or something. And um, and he had this placard on the front of it that said, well, it began with, Stalin was a hard man for hard times. And we need someone, you know, we need someone like that again. So yeah, it was okay. it was very surprising. And I think you mentioned, so you return 13 years later, and when you go back, yeah, how so, things changed? Yeah, uh, when, when I went back, it was actually, uh, 
that was maybe a trickle. And when I went back, it was really sort of a flood then of um, of a very pro-Stalin, um, I don't know if it was narrative so much, but certainly there was a sort of pro-Stalin imagery that was, um, that you could sort of sense in Russian society. There were little um, sort of trinkety postcards and stuff with uh, pictures of Stalin that were on sale just everywhere, you know? And um, so, yeah, the, the vibe was definitely very different um, later. Um, and I mean, you know, popularity um, polls sort of, that sort of matches what popularity polls say that is, you know, that Stalin's popularity has basically increased, particularly during the, uh, the Putin years. Todd explains that there was an organic nostalgia for the Soviet past during the 1990s, but it had little to do with Stalin. The focus of this nostalgia was the period freshest in memory and easiest to recall, the Brezhnev era. The period that it, people are most nostalgic for actually was the Brezhnev era. Um, and they were more nostalgic for sort of the stability and predictability of that era, which may be true of the 1950s in America too. But, um, but so the older generation remembers that period fondly. Um, and younger people, so there's this sort of mythologized view of the Soviet Union, I guess, that sort of is modeled on the stability of the Brezhnev era. And you know, so I think older, you mentioned too that there are some concrete achievements during during that time. Absolutely, well. absolutely. The space it. race and yes, and the fact that the that was really when the um, the Soviet Union sort of came into its own as a uh, as a world superpower, um, and it gave a lot of um, Soviet citizens this pride of country um, and that sort of thing. And so that gets this mythologized view of the Soviet Union is really what people have in mind when they think of it, both young and old. The young people look at this, uh, imagine how great it must have been, you know, to live during the Soviet period and the older people sort of, you know, view it with these um, rose colored glasses. And so the thing is though, um, the anachronistic aspect of this is that Putin has made Stalin the symbol of that Soviet Union. To make Stalin the symbol of the Soviet past, Todd explains that Putin had to resolve the dilemma of the two Stalins. There had always been this tension uh, in the narrative of Stalinism between what I call the two Stalins. So there was Stalin as this murderous tyrant, right, which is the Stalin of the gulag and uh, the repressions and extrajudicial execution. Uh, executions. And then there was the Stalin who brought the Soviet Union to victory in World War II, um, which is uh, by far the most important and significant event in, um, in Soviet and then Russian history. And so there were always, they could never, nobody ever really successfully sort of combined those two Stalins in a way that um, didn't make him seem odious. And so really the novelty of the Putin camp's approach was um, that they, they appended the Stalinist terror to the, the war narrative, to the narrative of the Great Patriotic War, as World War II is called in Russian, as this sort of um, unfortunate but necessary period where the Soviet Union undertook um, 
modernization and industrialization because Stalin knew, the idea is that Stalin knew that there was this coming war with Germany and that the Soviet Union would be crushed unless it modernized. And so, so the Stalinist terror is viewed as this period where Stalin uh, needed to raise this convict army in order to speed industrialization. And um, so, so it's viewed as an unfortunate and tragic, but necessary part of the war narrative, right? So in that way, it sort of becomes, um, it enters into this sort of, um, this sacral realm or sacred realm of the war where you can't really, there isn't really any criticism of the war um, it's sort of a societal taboo to criticize Soviet conduct during the war. And sort of that sort of inoculated the Stalinist terror from criticism. And but so the Russian that, people were not necessarily going in that direction on their own, right? They were longing for a different time, but they weren't necessarily focused on the genius or the greatness of, of Stalin, right? It no, absolutely. Than- absolutely. Built into the Stalin narrative are historic fears of threats of invasion. These past and present threats justify the need for a strong, centralized state. The history of Russia is sort of one devastating invasion after another. Um, just since since the earliest times in Russia, with the Swedes and the Teutons and the Mongols and the French and, um, and then the Germans. Um, and so... There is definitely this sort of uh, this notion that 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 is just sort of the way it is. It has to do with sort of the geopolitical uh, situation of Russia, and that it's what's referred to as a continental power, so it's surrounded by other powers, um, as opposed to what's called an insular power, like the United States, which has oceans on both sides and allies to the north and south. But so that's definitely a legitimate part of Russian history. The thing is, is that 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 it is then used by um, political elites to justify their own particular agenda, right? And so in, in the case of Putin, this is really the um, one of the main sort of things that is um, wrapped up in the whole narrative of Stalinism, because Stalin was very much about that as well. He was about the the West is out to get us and we're surrounded by enemies and there's this fifth column of spies and that sort of thing. And, and Putin is very much on board with that. And so he he sort of constantly tries to create this, this rally effect of, um, of portraying the Russian Federation as under attack from the West. And so people, generally tend to rally around leaders in that sort of situation. And what Putin is really sort of by implication saying with his use of Stalin is, is look at what Stalin was able to achieve with a highly centralized authoritarian regime, right? Against all odds, the Soviet Union emerged from World War II uh, victorious. And so the implication is that is sort of let me do what I need to do here and I will protect you. I will keep you safe from 
those evil people in the West who are trying to, who are out to get Russia and that sort of thing. And so the, which, which then makes it, that's a very sort of um, useful sort of uh, ideology to be fomenting because it allows him to, so when, for example, um, when Russia shot down uh, MH17, the Malaysian airliner uh, during the fighting in the Donbass region in Ukraine, um, and the Europe, both Europe and the United States slapped sanctions on Russia because of it, then Putin can point to that and say, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is the West trying to you know, tell Russia what to do or whatever. And so that has anything, a lot of- imp- that Anything well, can and, be turned around, right? Sure, take- absolutely. And that's like, but that has a lot to do also with with a lot of the Russian, not only military, but um, you know, sort of uh, other sort of interventionism, like meddling in uh, European and American elections. It's sort of this idea that the best defense is a good offense, and I think that resonates with a lot of Russians who who find it rather amusing, for example, that 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 President. Uh, that Donald Trump was elected president, for example. A lot of my Russian friends find that to be a very amusing sort of um, situation. World War II is at the heart of the Stalin narrative because it has profound meaning and significance for the Russian people. The reason that the Great Patriotic War is used as a sort of anchor for national identity is, is because it was such a profound event that was really a very, um, the the entire survival of the state depended on it. So in the United States, for example, um, fighting a war on two fronts, we lost around 500,000, mostly men, but 500,000 people. Um, And the Soviet Union, depending on which estimates you use, lost between 26 and 30 million people. And more than half of those were civilian. So it really, profoundly affected every single Soviet family. And so it's, it really is in a very real sense, this sort of um, this narrative that touches everyone. And in our case, World War II just doesn't, doesn't have that sort of reach, right? And, and it was something that happened over there as opposed to um, here. So there are a lot of reasons why um, we can't use sort of World War II as our um, foundational myth along those lines. I was actually talking to one of my classes recently about um, sort of like the ideas that people get about like sort of historical narratives. And so I was asking the class what they thought the turning point of World War II was if they knew even sort of unusual that students know much about World War II these days, but actually several were saying that uh, D-Day was, well, D-Day because it opened the second front and, you know, allowed um, sort of everyone do gang up on Hitler and and most historians would say actually I'll, I'll go ahead and say all historians would say that really Stalingrad was the was the turning point of World War II. Soviet Union was never on the defensive after that again. So it's just but it's sort of funny how you know the sort of significance of different events varies according to the country that was experiencing them. Tightening controls over the education system and the instruction of history in particular was central to the process of crafting the new Stalin narrative. 
It was a narrative that minimized and made the story of the repressions as dry as possible, while highlighting and dramatizing the history of the Great Patriotic War. The Putin years are really where everything sort of came very decidedly back under state control, from the changing of um, national exams to be standardized across the Russian Federation, to you know the use of uh, specific textbooks, um, not accidentally ones that contained the state narrative, um, and there was yes, there was a lot more control over. And it's it's interesting because that seems to really have been applied applied specifically to the area of history. You know, so the the state produced these textbooks and provided them to free provided them free to schools that were willing to use it, and that that didn't happen in any other discipline in any other you know that's really just a specific historic you know history um, was a it was a very discipline specific sort of program that they they had. And these new textbooks, the narratives, I think your, your point is you've got to emphasize and de-emphasize at the same time. And how, how do the textbooks do that? What do they stress? What do they play well, down? What do they so out? so nowadays, actually, so in 2013, the Russian education system underwent this just absolutely massive transformation. And so nowadays, uh, there is much, much less discussed about Stalinism than at any other point in um in recent russian history so there is there's there's a lot more of a um a sort of general whitewashing of that entire period than there had been even in the early um 2000s and i guess up to that point so things have really sort of changed dramatically since um since i was doing field work and sort of looking at um this question, but but there are a lot of the same techniques that are used, and this isn't this isn't specific to Russia. This this also happens uh, in Japan. There's some scholarship about um, the various sort of uh, mechanisms that they use to uh, to de-emphasize some of the more odious aspects of uh, Japanese history, particularly with respect to um, the war with China in the late 1930s. But so, for example, you um, you omit agency, right? So instead of you use the passive voice in describing um, atrocities or um, or war crimes or that sort of thing, um, and that that actually is it's such a feature of the the Russian um, case, particularly with respect to uh, the Stalinist terror, that that it's. It's as if people died in some sort of natural disaster or something. But really, when you read some of the textbook narratives, it's you really get the sense that that no one was really responsible, that this sort of just happened and it's unfortunate and um, that sort of thing. So definitely that's, that's intentional is some of that is to, to make it dry and uh, impersonal. Oh, totally. and less yes, no. yes, absolutely. It's very intentional. Very intentional. There was one, uh, I talk about it in the book, that there was um, this, there was, I sort of contrasted the um, description of people who had perished in the camps, you know, in the, in the gulag, um, and then people who had been killed during the war. And so the, the gulag deaths, it's, you know, these people um, succumbed while they were, you know, in transit or in various camps. 
And then with respect to the people who were killed during the war, it was it was sort of ridiculous. Was, in golden in the golden letters of history are written the names, you know, and and it's actually so, sort of amusing. Through the use of new textbooks, Putin could position himself as part of a long succession of strong authoritarian rulers who achieved great things for Russia. This same narrative could also be used to draw a sharp dividing line between Putin's regime and that of his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. There is a, uh, there's a, a sort of infamous teacher's manual um, known as the Filipov uh, Manual. It's a teacher's guide um, for, and it has a section on how teachers should talk about Stalinism. And what it suggests is that, um, that Stalin should be portrayed as, as but one of a number of different Russian leaders who achieved great things for Russia, but at a tremendous human cost, right? So you have uh, Ivan Grozny or Ivan the Terrible, I guess as we say, um, Peter the Great, right? Stalin would be another one. And then sort of by implication, Putin is then the next guy in line of a, you know, a, a, a strong ruler who does good things for Russia, but who is very autocratic and authoritarian. But the Yeltsin period um, within that, and particularly within the, the narrative that the Putin camp sort of puts out um, about the period, is that that is portrayed to Russian school children, particularly, as, as that was the era of democratization. That was democracy, right? And so, and because it was really literally a decade of just almost constant political and economic chaos, um, with you know, Yeltsin had been impeached several times by the Duma and then the, the Federation Council, which is the upper house of the Russian parliament, refused to sort of ratify that. So, uh, so he remained in office, but he was just constantly sort of under siege and the procurator uh, general was looking into charges constantly against Yeltsin and uh, sort of members of his coterie. Um, so it was really a very chaotic and unpleasant period for um, a lot of people. There's a lot of unpredictability. But so because that gets painted as the era of democracy and sort of market capitalism, um, the the implication again by the state is that, well, so you, but you don't want that. Right? You don't want to go back to that. The Stalin narrative that students learn through history textbooks is mirrored and reinforced by museums and memorials. Just as the story of the Great Patriotic War is more central and dynamic in textbooks, it is also more present and engaging in museums and memorials. Just as the story of the repressions is more opaque and dry in school textbooks, it is also more garbled and abstract in museums and memorials. Without the benefit of context from history books, Russians who do visit museums and memorials devoted to the repressions are more likely to take less away from the experience. Memorials to the war are, are just absolutely everywhere in, in Russia. It's sort of, it's hard to overstate that, in fact. It's, streets are named for heroes of the Soviet Union who were killed. Um, there are ribbons affixed to, um, to lampposts and stuff that have significance about the war. And, and there are memorials that are grand and, 
um, and in very public places where you will be sure to see them and run into them. Whereas by contrast, memorials to victims of political repression, where they exist, because there are decidedly um, far fewer of them, um, they tend to be located in out of the way places or places where you wouldn't expect to find them um, or that sort of thing. It's one of my sort of favorite examples of that were uh, these sphinxes on the banks of the Neva River in St. Petersburg that are they're you know about 20 mile uh, 20 minutes away from the nearest metro station and you sort of need to know where to walk you really sort of need to search them out to find them but there's absolutely nothing around there that would that would cause anyone to run into them during the course of their normal day whereas with memorials to the war that is absolutely not the case you will run into at least five or six reminders of the war on any given day it doesn't really matter where you are so that's so it's a, not just it's not just numbers it's their location it's their yes. accessibility right and i think you, you you go to great lengths to talk about that how accessible are the are the are the monuments and memorials museums that are that that are in sync with the official narrative and a lot of right. these go back to the soviet era that are kind of repurposed right well the, but there's sort of there there's a difference though between like sites of um memorialization for example well hmm. so i was actually just i was thinking about this earlier so where these events actually occurred for example where people were shot um, where people are buried um, that that isn't something that can be changed, right? That's just sort of the historical, that's where this happened. However, the monuments or a memorial to those people could be put anywhere. Certainly you would want something probably on that site, but you could put a memorial in the down, you know, on Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg or someplace where people would see and have to sort of um, be confronted by that. But that is the furthest thing away from uh, reality in Russia today. So in fact, um, recently, the, this, what is called the Wall of Sorrow was unveiled in Moscow. And, and it's, it's sort of in the middle of this shopping district and it's equidistant from three different Metro stops and it's about a half hour walk from each of them. So it's not, it's not really anywhere where people are going to um, you know, see it or, um, or have to deal with it. And you would never pick up on that reading about this in the press. It seems like this is right, a that significant is, yes. memorial. Right. Intended uh, by the president. Right. And there is also, though, then the, so when Putin was giving his opening remarks at that, at the Wall of Sorrow, for example, he didn't mention the word gulag one time, or even the word Stalin, he didn't even mention Stalin's name in his remarks, which seems a sort of egregious oversight considering. But so that's, that's sort of, that's one of the other ways, I guess, that, so you know, if I could go back and say this really quickly, there are several ways that even when memorials to victims of political repression do exist, they are not on an equal footing with, um, with memorials to the war. And so the first way is that a lot of times there will be some sort of garbled 
either there will be no text whatsoever giving any sort of explanatory information about what this is a memorial to or who was affected, any numbers, any sort of scope or depth. So at the Sphinxes, for example, um, there's a little uh, concrete uh, book and it says, to the victims of political repression, which, I mean, what does that mean exactly? You know, if, if you didn't have context, then you wouldn't really understand what that is about. And you would not have context living in Russia. You would not have an understanding of the narrative of political repression, what that means, you know, how many people were affected, that sort of thing. Whereas with the patriotic war, everyone understands the history of that. So you can't, it's, it's, you are able to have sort of broader, you can make those sort of broad statements and people will construct sort of a narrative in their mind because they understand the context just by living in Russian society. And so the other, the other way is that uh, in the memorials themselves, and it's sort of unclear to me, but it seems that this was maybe um, an attempt to sort of get away with um, building these memorials in the first place so that they weren't too, um, too sort of confrontational or, um, yeah. so memorials to victims of political repression tend to be abstract figures. So the Sphinxes, for example, why Sphinxes? Well, your guess is as good as mine, like rising from the ashes or, whatever, but there, there really isn't any sort of clear context to that. Um, and at the, so there's this- but you're uh, not gonna have a realistic enchained- Right, you will not have, yes, you will not have any sort of, you know, sculpture showing someone of... in pain or, you know, in distress or being beaten or menaced or anything like that, yes. You will have that in terms of uh, the, the patriotic war, however you're much more likely to have you know, realistic figures and that sort of thing. There's a, a burial uh, site outside St. Petersburg called Levashova. That's the Levashova Memorial uh, Cemetery where some 40,000 um, victims of, um, of Stalinism had been executed. I guess they weren't executed there or they were, they were buried there. And um, so when I went to visit on the, on the other side of the street in a place where you wouldn't even really sort of get that it's associated with, with the cemetery, but there was this bizarre sort of um, monument um, and it, it looked sort of like a, a bizarre robot or something. And when you got closer, you could sort of see that it, it, that's what it looked like. It was sort of a robot that then you could see that there was like a, a small human figure in there. And it, I guess it's called the grinder of totalitarianism, but it, it made absolutely made no sense. So, to me who's whatsoever. to blame for that? I mean, is it is the state? Uh, does it have a final say in which you monument know, I, or memorial gets approved? I do not know. Or is it just because I think you, I don't you know stress that. that in the case of the repression, uh, a lot of these sites of memory are the they the products of private donations. Mm -hmm. right? They're private initiatives. It's yes. uh, they don't have the backing of the state like the mm -hmm. uh, like the ones that that uh, are devoted to. You know, my, my, from talking to uh, different people at Memorial, my sense is that um, that that they were happy to even get something put up. 
that they were happy that they could even get something, you know, to memorialize people at all. So I, it may be something sort of along the lines of the situation with the media that, you know, you don't, you don't want to step over a line and, and lose the whole project entirely, right? And by doing abstract figures, that's sort of a safe, you know, sort of banal way of um, at least having something there for people to see. The emphasis on celebrating the Great Patriotic War is also evident on Russian television. Todd finds that the significant percentage of airtime devoted to the war contributes to and is part of a dangerous militarization of Russian society. World War II is really sort of the main vehicle that the narrative of Stalinism tends to be uh, transmitted. Um, So there's really a sort of glorification and uh, mythologizing um, of the the war effort, and you will certainly see that on um, on on television. For one, for example, in in Russia, um, and I think what I said in the book is on on any given night there would be at least two programs about World War II on at any given time, and there was even actually a a channel uh, Zvezda which is a star and it's actually run by the defense ministry. And that's, that's sort of all they put on are sort of military, um, these sort of military uh, programs or movies about the great patriotic war, or that sort of thing, which is sort of, and so the, a natural outgrowth of that um, is this, is the extent to which Russian society has become militarized, which is, is really a, quite profound. And even when I was there uh, last in 2009, when I was at uh, at St. Petersburg State University, uh, we were looking, some uh, friends and I were looking at the course schedules. um, And for all the Russian students, they, for, uh, for all the males, they had to participate in these mandatory military training exercises. And, um, and women had to participate in um, I don't think it was specifically nursing, but I think I had talked to a couple of people who said that that's really what it was, a sort of medical training and that sort of thing. And, and I mean, that's totally a throwback to the, the Soviet era. Beyond the celebration of the war in textbooks, memorials, and on the airwaves, the state also has powerful tools to respond to organizations and individuals who might challenge the official narrative. In the weeks following this interview, Putin's regime finally shuttered Memorial International, Russia's most prominent human rights organization and its staunchest advocate for the memory of the repressions. So groups that attempt to counter that narrative or offer alternative narratives, such as Memorial, for example, Memorial International, um, tend to... uh, have very antagonistic relationships with the state. And you're seeing that right now. I I think you're probably aware that Memorial is sort of on the chopping block, although it has been a number of different times, remain to be seen what happens. But um, one of the ways that the Putin regime sort of ensures that that narrative remains dominant is by eliminating organizations that would challenge it. And one of the ways that they've done that is through what are called the the NGO laws, which 
um, which sort of which placed these onerous requirements on non-governmental organizations in Russia, um, particularly ones that receive foreign funding, which tend to be the ones that are human rights organizations or pro-democracy organizations. But another way, and this is really why I was saying um, that the system is going to outlive Putin, is that what he has done is he's created an arena for civil society in the Russian Federation, right? Civil society um, in political science is usually sort of referred to as the, the space between the lowest level of organization, which is the family and the state. So it should be nominally not part of the state, but Putin sort of ignores that whole thing and has created what's called the public chamber, um, which sort of, which seeks to, um, to um, what's the word shepherd, I guess, the different non-governmental organizations um, in Russia, which of course actually is a way of saying monitor, um, but it allows him to uh, keep a fairly tight grip on, um, on the production of narratives that counter the state, the state's official narrative. Before the state took measures to further strip the independent media of what little autonomy it possessed, Todd notes that most of the censorship in Russia was self-imposed. For a while, there were there was quite a robust independent media in Russia, particularly during the 1990s. That was one of the things that Putin um, put an end to rather quickly when he came to power. Um, and and several uh, several scholars have talked about this. It's you don't need to co-opt or um, or close all of the media outlets. All you need to do is sort of make it understood what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to be airing or publishing or that sort of thing. In that way, it's a very sort of Soviet, like Soviet sort of model, um, which is that, uh, and actually there's an article called, I think Sarah Oates has the neo-Soviet model of the Russian media, um, where she says exactly that. It's that that everyone understands what you are allowed to print or air. And so everyone knows where the line is and some, some outlets get closer to it than other outlets, but everybody knows that if you step over that line, then there are going to be consequences for that. So everybody tends to remain, um, you know, and everyone seems to sort of acquiesce to the wishes of the state. Todd doesn't believe that it was inevitable that Russia would end up with Putin and the Stalin narrative. He argues that there were many missed opportunities in the 1990s as Russia transitioned from communism to democracy that could have steered the country in a very different direction. There really hasn't ever been any sort of um, any sort of transitional justice that should have accompanied the transition from the Soviet Union to the Russian Federation. In almost every society where there is that sort of transition from a, you know, a, uh, an authoritarian system, particularly one with egregious human rights abuses to the new um, sort of more democratic state with that values human rights and that sort of thing, there needs to be some sort of accountability for the past and uh, some sort of um, erring, um, and coming to terms with the past. 
and that really never that really never happened in Russia. There were some there were some sort of early attempts um, to do that, and Yeltsin briefly banned the Communist Party, for example. But um, but nobody was really all that interested in doing that, um, in part because some people were still uh, didn't want the Soviet Union to go away in the first place, and um, and in part because it's it's very difficult to do that. But also, I think the the Stalinist terror, um, unlike a lot of other um, big human rights violations, um, was a situation where it was very difficult to affix the terms of perpetrator and victim. Because a lot of the uh, people who perpetrated the Stalinist terror, who conducted executions or signed death warrants or did that sort of thing, were then swallowed up by the purges themselves, and they ended up being victims. So there's a lot of sort of ambiguity and confusion about the appropriate assessment of um, culpability for those um, for those crimes. So oh, even if guess, you are trying to delve into this thing uh, uh, more thoroughly, it's a complicated story. It's not. It is. Not a it is a complicated story, and there are really there is not a great appetite for for undertaking that sort of examination. There, there really has never been there. You know, and earlier on, maybe, maybe even in the late uh, 1980s, when the memorial organization was sort of getting going, there was more of a an interest societally in doing that sort of thing. And this is really. Uh, I guess it's my own personal sort of belief, but my view is that this is really the the big the biggest negative um, in the West's bungled handling of the Soviet uh, the transition from Soviet Union to Russian Federation. Not that it's necessarily our responsibility, but we were in a position to have made that a lot easier, um, and probably to have changed the trajectory of how that happened. But the moment that Yeltsin took power, almost immediately, uh, the, the situation, the economic situation um, particularly, became so dire so quickly for so many people that they had other things to worry about. You know, it was how am I going to feed my family or what am I going to, you know, how am I going to pay for this or, you know, the, the exigencies of daily life sort of took precedence over any sort of um, more philosophical or... Desire for soul-searching, right? Yes, or that. The militarism we see in Russia today and Russian support for Putin's authoritarian regime cannot be fully understood without taking into consideration the new Stalin narrative. Carefully crafted since Putin's rise to power over 20 years ago, an entire generation of Russians has grown up with a new understanding of their national past. This understanding diminishes the significance of the millions who died because of Stalin as an unfortunate but necessary prelude to the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. It is the victory in the Great Patriotic War that is the centerpiece of the Stalin narrative and proof of all that Russians can achieve with a strong authoritarian state. It is perfectly understandable why Russians would rather celebrate their achievements 
than dwell on past crimes. But the failure to confront the staggering magnitude of these crimes has made it easier for Putin to abuse the powers of the state, silencing his political rivals, muzzling the media, and rallying the Russian people behind the horrors of the ongoing war in Ukraine, Putin's actions are a powerful reminder of the dangers of failing to find the courage to work through our darkest chapters. I would like to thank Todd Nelson for generously sharing his time and thoughts with me. I would also like to thank Todd for sending me a number of photos, which I've used on the podcast social media sites. Next month, we'll return to the story of Stalin. We'll hear from Georgetown University professor Kathleen Smith about her book, Stalin's Victims, Popular Memory and the End of the USSR. Kathleen argues that Soviet leaders and activists did try to work through the crimes of the Stalin era. Find out next month what went wrong. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thank you again for taking time to listen to Realms of Memory.